This episode is brought to you by Kitsch. What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Cassandra Lane is an author, journalist, artist, and speaker. Her beautiful memoir, We Are Bridges, is a labor of love born from generational trauma, as well as years of healing and honing her craft. We are honored that Cassandra was willing to speak with us about what came next after her great-grandfather's lynching in the early 1900s and healing her family's residual trauma upon her entrance to motherhood. My name is Cassandra Lane. I am a writer, I'm an editor, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, a friend, a lover. My book is We Are Bridges. It's a memoir that ties my contemporary story of becoming a mother with my ancestors' story. Those who really, really know me are probably gonna call me Sand, which is my nickname. That name to me is a metaphor. I love the earth, I love nature. I grew up in a really tiny, semi-rural town in Louisiana and was always outside under my grandmother's fig trees and plum trees, picking the fruit, eating the fruit, but also just using it as shade to reflect. My little town, it's called De Ritter. It was, quote unquote, founded by a Dutchman. It's a dry town in the sense that it's landlocked. It's kind of in the middle part of the state, but on the Texas border. And it's also dry in the sense that alcohol is forbidden, at least legally. There were practitioners of moonshine, people making their own recipes for alcoholic beverages. It was a military town because 20 miles up the road, there was a fort called Fort Pope, which is where my mom eventually worked for many years very religious town. There was no movie theater, or at least there was one before I was born that burned down. A rumor has it that one of the most powerful churches refused to allow it to be rebuilt because movies bring in all kinds of sinful things. So it's a very religious town. There's no movie theater, but there are churches on every corner. There was one school in terms of every grade level. So everybody pretty much went to the same school. Those schools were not integrated until a year before I was born, I think, in 1970. So my mom and her brothers went to segregated schools. I grew up in a family of musicians and preachers. My mom is a gospel guitarist. Many of my uncles, she has seven brothers, were preachers. After she divorced my dad when I was around five, we moved back in with her parents who were in their 70s. 
my mom went to work for that government job and my grandparents really helped raise us. I'm the oldest of what eventually became five children. We were very poor. We had food to eat, but poverty was real. I wanted to get out of poverty. At that time, I was supremely timid. Family would definitely say that I was quiet. I told my mother around maybe 10 or 11 that I wanted to be a writer. I just loved reading so much and I wanted to somehow create for people that kind of beauty. And since I didn't talk that much, writing was my way of communicating. My mom bought me my first diary, a little green diary that had a gold lock and key. And I poured everything into that thing. I didn't know any writers, though. There wasn't even a bookstore in our town. I mean, we had the public library and school library. And my favorite teachers throughout school were always my literature teachers. But there was no Barnes and Noble. On weekends, the house was always packed. The door was never locked. There was a revolving door. People coming in to borrow sugar or flour or jam sessions. So the musicians would get together and practice in my grandmother's living room hours on end. There were prayer meetings. I loved my elders. I loved just snooping in on their conversations, their voices, cadences, their rhythms, their silences, because even those silences were full of so much. I was tuning my ears and my brain in a way that I didn't realize. So between listening to all of those elder conversations and listening to my mom practice over and over again on her guitar, which was a release for her, but listening to her practice all of that, I really believe shaped me as a person and eventually as a writer. I knew about my great-grandfather's lynching. I don't know at what age, but while I was still a child. So I knew about my great-grandfather, Bert Bridges, because my grandfather, his son, after he retired from chopping trees, he was a logger. He didn't have any hobbies or real interests. My grandmother would try to get him to get into gardening, just anything. He refused to do that. And he was just dealing with depression. He would sit in this old, worn green recliner and reminisce about the past. One of the things that he talked about was how he didn't know his father because his father was lynched when he was a baby or right before he was born. As a kid, sitting there playing, but still listening and internalizing it, I was amazed that this man in his 80s at the time was crying over something that had happened so long ago. Yes, it was his father, but he didn't know him. He'd never met him. Why was he so deeply disturbed about this? That's not something that I thought impacted me. Even as a young woman, I knew my family's struggles and that part of our past, but I just thought hard work, dedication, and creativity, I can be something else. It was just a very, very rich upbringing. I wanted to experience more. My mother was a big reader as well, and I would sneak and read her romance novels and dream about all these places in Europe and having a studio in New York or a flat in London. I knew that I needed to get beyond the confines of that small town, even though it was very enriching and all of the people in my family and the neighborhood were very interesting people, but I wanted to see the world. So for me, college was hopefully a doorway out of that. When I got onto the college campus, 
it was liberating. It was fun. All of the academic classes that you have to take that aren't necessarily your forte, like all of the maths for me and some of the sciences. I loved that I was able to take French all four years because I had taken French since second grade. I just loved languages and loved words. I changed my major pretty quickly from English literature to journalism, news, print journalism specifically. I figured I at least can get some internships and get a job as a reporter. I had one cousin who was the first person in the family to go to college, and he had majored in photojournalism. I looked up to him. He was a few years older. I applied to one college, and that was the college that he had graduated from. He had mentored me, just a few talks, but just having one person at least who had been down that path, who believed in me, who encouraged me, it was the world. And I figured on the sides, on the weekends, at night, that's when I'll do my creative writing. Well, that did happen in terms of becoming a reporter. In fact, I started my journalism career right there on campus. I was the first Black and woman editor-in-chief of the campus newspaper at the University of Louisiana at Monroe. I had to go before a board of seven or eight people. I was a junior, but they gave me the position. And that was my first time working with my peers in that kind of way. I mean, we had all been students together in our journalism classes, but what surprised me in that role was that not only did college students, my peers read the paper, and of course, administrators, But a lot of the people in that town, they read the campus newspaper as well. So to get my first letters from this broader community, I believe I still have a couple of those letters. And there's nothing like knowing that you have a reader, even if it's just one reader. During my time as editor-in-chief, I also had a part-time job at a local television station. I would work graveyard shift doing that. My senior year, I did my one and only internship, which was at the Daily Metropolitan Newspaper, who I went to work for after graduation. I wrote stories all day long, articles covering fires and crime and all of that. But eventually they gave me my bi-monthly column. And that was a way that I also got a chance to really have an intimate relationship with my readers. Because back then people wrote real letters and I have a box of those letters Everyone from inmates at Angola prison to elderly people who just read the paper every day, people who were angry about some of the things that I wrote. And it's important to hear that, too, to be able to face people who are disagreeing with you. And it was such early training for the writing that I wanted to do later with books. Journalism, I thought that it would be something that I could do during the day and then have my real life in the evenings and on weekends, but that is not how journalism works. And definitely back then, of course, the field has changed so much, but it was all consuming, using my brain and writing energy throughout the day to produce and being on constant deadline, writing under several editors, which is good training ground, but I found myself exhausted. At some point, I just forgot that I was supposed to be working on my creative work. (laughs) But it was always a little seed in my belly burning. My last full-time newspaper job was in New Orleans, the biggest newspaper in the state, which was the Times-Picayune. I thought, oh, I've arrived. I've made it. I was making more money than I'd ever made. 
cost of living was still reasonable. So it was really nice in terms of upward mobility. Of course, the work increased. I found myself still not satisfied. I started writing a little bit more creatively, just little pieces of essays, pieces of stories, and talking to my mom. You know, she's always the person that I talk to when I feel like I can't do this anymore. We had had that phone conversation in college when I was carrying such a big load with editor-in-chief of the paper, plus working at night at the television station. She walked me through that. She did the same thing when I told her that I couldn't deal with the newsroom anymore. There were a lot of microaggressions, just outright racism at a school board that I had to cover. Just feeling isolated too. The newspaper had several satellite offices and I was at a satellite office in this little town called Chalmette, which was known as KKK territory and Confederate statues everywhere. And I just soulfully felt so depleted and creatively felt unfulfilled. My mom just said, you really want to come up with a plan. You back out of the lion's mouth. You don't just quit. You save, you create a plan. One of the saving graces for me was finding a creative writing workshop, a Black-run workshop called NOMO Literary Society. It was an amazing experience. It was some amazing poets and writers in that workshop. It reminded me of my childhood, just all the musicians that I grew up around, people riffing off each other. It was eye-opening. It was liberating. It helped me develop my voice as a creative writer outside of the newsroom and eventually gave me the courage that I needed to leave the newsroom. I got a chance to freelance for publications in New York and Atlanta. It was actually much more work than I thought working from home. You're constantly on, but because I was in the workshop and I had that creative community, I became really dedicated to working on my first book. I didn't know what that book was yet, but I was just writing these little pieces of chapters. Some of the members in the workshop have gone on to be incredibly successful. Jericho Brown, who won a Pulitzer Prize. Terrence Hayes has won a National Book Award. They had done MFA programs. And so I started looking at MFA programs in creative writing. Could I do one of those that would give me the concentrated time that I need to really give my all to a book? My now ex-husband, husband at the time, he was a New Yorker, but he loved New Orleans. We were ready to move on professionally. We felt like we had gone as far as we could go in the town. He also was at the newspaper that I worked at. He was a photojournalist. We decided that we were open to leaving New Orleans. He needed to find a job as a photographer, and I wanted to find an MFA program that I could apply to. I don't like the cold, so I was kind of limited. LA is warm. I've always wanted to maybe live in California. So I started looking at MFA programs in LA and I found one that I love. Thankfully, I got in. We picked up and moved. We left New Orleans in the fall of 2001 and settled here in Los Angeles. I started the MFA program in December. It was amazing. It truly gave me the concentrated time that I needed. It was a two-year program to figure out what this book or this manuscript was and to dedicate that time to it and to have the support of community and also my professors to help me shape it. When I moved out to Los Angeles, so far away from my family, almost 2,000 miles, it gave me the distance that I needed to look back on our past, to appreciate 
my ancestors and family members in ways that I hadn't even thought to do while I was still in that soup or gumbo, (laughs) to use a Louisiana metaphor. Because when you're part of something, you're just seeped in it. You're one of the many ingredients. And so being torn from that voluntarily, but still missing them, excited about this new place that was so geographically different with all of its hills and mountains and dryness, but also the ocean, contrasting that with this wet, moist, hot, marshy place that I'd come from, people who spoke in a different way, who valued different things. I just developed a curiosity about my own people that I hadn't necessarily had while I was there in Louisiana. I didn't know at first what my thesis was going to be in my MFA program, but I was also looking at my personal life, struggles that I was having in my own romantic relationship, my marriage, as well as past romantic relationships. One particular incident that I write about in the book that had happened with my husband and I in New York, I just had like this breakdown that had to do with race. It came for me seemingly out of nowhere, but it was very paralyzing. It was emotionally upsetting. It was internal. I didn't understand the depth of it. I mean, my husband and I would talk about microaggressions and outright aggressions in the newsroom. Mostly, we lived in a neighborhood that was Black, and I just hadn't dealt with the sort of racial stuff that my family had experienced. I thought that I could separate from that and just move on with my life. But working and having the time away from Louisiana and from family, having that concentrated time in the MFA program to really go deep, I decided that that's what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about what happened to Bert Bridges, my great-grandfather. I hadn't done any sort of real ancestral research. I wanted to just have that as a starting point, particularly because Bert Bridges was the love of my great-grandmother's life, Mary. I remember her very well. We were all in the same house, in my grandparents' house after she was kind of forced to leave her farm because she was in her 90s and not able to take care of things. I was 11 when she died. I remember her talking to ghosts, which was confusing. I didn't understand that. They were forced to put her in a nursing home. She had fallen and broken her hip. She was crying for Burt Bridges. After all those decades, she had remarried someone, been married off, really. It was a distant cousin because she was with child. They thought, you have to be with someone. They married her off to this man. But I was amazed all the way out here in Los Angeles, this woman in her 90s was on her deathbed crying about the father of her child. They never actually married, but she was in love with him. And she would say, we loved each other. He was beautiful. He was one fine man, but people hated him because he was proud and they lynched him. But then she wouldn't give us more information. She didn't want to talk about it. I think that was the most heartbreaking thing about it. All I have were those scraps, not even full bones, just like little splinters of bones. And that was his first name and his last name, Bert Bridges. The way we surmise that he was lynched probably in 1904 is because that's when my grandfather, Houston, was born, his son. Houston always said, I never got a chance to meet my father. So that's what we had. A year, the name, and the town that it most likely happened in, which was Pike County, Holmesville, Mississippi. That's the town and county in Mississippi 
that's on my grandfather Houston's birth certificate. That was a delayed birth certificate because Black Americans in the South didn't have to have paperwork. There was no death certificate for Bird Bridges. I searched and searched for a newspaper article. It's not a surprise that I didn't come across an article or at least a blurb naming him because there are countless unnamed victims of lynching. At one point, I hired a very well-respected Mississippi researcher, Jan, who I knew could move a little faster and deeper than I could. She came to me with as much as she could find. We believe that we found the Burt Bridges, who was my great-grandfather, on a census report. I had taken a DNA test. I had seen, I believe, a version of that census report on Ancestry.com. I knew that that was my great-grandfather, my ancestor, because distant cousins tied to that name also popped up. Jan found some other documents and sent me everything that she had. So I poured over that information just to piece together a bit of a story for Bert. He had siblings. His father and mother were farmers. I believe they were in Virginia before they migrated to Mississippi. He was born in, I believe, early 1880s. I still haven't run across anyone who can say, yeah, I've heard about the story of Burt Bridges. As I was writing, I just decided the genealogy portion of this project will have to be separate. I want this book to be about what it does to generations of people when you snatch someone and leave this huge void in their lives. You're not just killing that one person. You are destroying a line of people. What that does, the impact of losing someone through tragedy, the impact of not having answers, the impact of such void, what it does to family generation after generation, everything from economically to spiritually to emotionally and mentally. So that, for me, became what the book was about. I became obsessed with that story. Thank you, Kitsch, for sponsoring this episode. I know by now you've heard me mention Kitsch several times. That's because I am a huge fan of this female-founded brand that's blossomed from selling high-quality, affordable hair ties door-to-door in 2010 to truly mastering skin and hair care. No matter your budget, Kitsch has something to truly enhance your beauty regimen. They're best known for their satin pillowcases, heatless rollers, and rice water shampoo bars, but they are so much more than that. I swear by their scrunchies and barrettes, as well as their travel size container sets. Kitsch makes organizing and maintaining my beauty regimen so much easier. Plus, they have super cute collaborations available, like their current Barbie collection. And right now, Kitsch is offering you 30% off your entire order at mykitsch.com WCN. That's right, 30% off anything and everything at mykitsch, that's M-Y-K-I-T-S-C-H dot com WCN. One more time, mykitsch.com WCN for 30% off your entire order. Southern trees bear strange fruit 
I had first listened to Billie Holiday while I was in college, seeing Strange Fruit, and I was haunted by that. And I started listening to her sing that song again when I moved to Los Angeles. I started listening to Billie Holiday, Nina Simone, going to cemeteries and looking for tombstones that had the year that my great-grandfather was lynched, 1904, on them. We didn't know where he was buried, if there was even a tombstone. I started looking at places that could give me some material substance to fill in all of the gaps that were left by this atrocious act. It started infiltrating my dreams. I started dreaming about my ancestors. I thought, I'll write a story recreating Bert and his love with Mary. But I really was obsessed with Bert and thought that he would be my main character. That's what I thought the book was going to be, just about him and then his love with Mary. But over time, it changed. I would write what I thought were separate pieces about my own journey and struggles and dreams. But workshop members would say, you need to weave these two together. These are not separate. And it's where I really started first learning about epigenetics and the impact of trauma and how that can be passed on to us through our cells. We knew that even before we had the term epigenetics, there's even that scripture about the sins of the father and things being passed on in the bloodline. But studying that as the science became more available to the public, it really gave me the juice that I needed and the encouragement that I needed to connect my contemporary story with this ancestral story. When I first started writing it, I and my husband had decided that we did not want children. I thought initially that it was because, oh, I just want to be free. I want to be successful and I want to travel. I love kids. I always loved kids, but I didn't think that was a path for me because I didn't want to be slowed down. Looking back, I realized as I started trying to do some healing work that I associated motherhood and children with poverty because of the struggles that I saw my mother go through. I also unconsciously didn't want to bring a Black child into what I knew was a country that was not loving and embracing of Black children. I was teaching at an alternative school in Highland Park and fell in love with those kids. They were struggling with so much. Those kids were there for everything from misdemeanors to felonies. At one point, I was asked to be a part of their therapy sessions, just to go and be a voice, to listen. And I got to see behind the scenes what they were struggling with, what their family stories were, which just told so much about why they were where they were. Emotionally, it was working on me. I told my husband I wanted to work on healing whatever was broken inside of me when it came to my relationship with my mother, with my father, with the family. And I said, you know, what if I'm supposed to be a mom? He was like, we decided we're not going to be parents. And that was totally fair because that is exactly what we had decided. But I was having my own little separate journey of exploration after our marriage ended. I decided that I wanted to be open to the possibility of becoming a mother, whether or not I became a mother or not. I just didn't want my decision to not become a mother to be rooted in any sort of bitterness or resentment, because there was a point where I felt resentful for 
having to do so much as the oldest, having so many burdens and not feeling like I had the freedom to just be a kid or teen. I wrote my mother a letter. I wrote my father a letter, even though he hadn't been part of our lives after the divorce and was just trying to let things go and heal. I really thought, I think I'm supposed to be a mom. I met a guy who is now my second husband and became pregnant pretty quickly. (laughs) I turned to, especially after becoming a mom, the women who were left, specifically my great-grandmother, wanting to highlight her and tell her story. Because I think because the women were domestics, even though I appreciated them, that's not how I saw my life. I think I had sort of brushed the importance of these women to the side and not saw them as the pillars of strength that they were. I became interested, especially after becoming a mom, in their interior lives and their interior stories. My grandmother, my mother's mother, was a maid by trade during the day, but she made these amazing Southern everyday quilts. She was an amazing cook. I still taste her food and I still am haunted by great grandma Mary's tea cakes, a recipe that I have not been able to find. Just before she fell and broke her hip, she was going to teach my mother how to make those tea cakes, but she fell on the day that she was supposed to teach her and we never got that demonstration or that recipe. And it's something that haunts all of us still because they were just heavenly. I can still taste them. And we've tried testing different Southern tea cake recipes from YouTube and online, mixing things, and just have not been able to recreate it. I gained a deeper appreciation for who they were, what they were able to create despite so much oppression from the larger community and country, but also sometimes from the men in their lives. The story took on this fuller shape. Because in examining these women in my life, I was able to consider who am I going to be as a mother? Who do I want to be as a mother? I thought I was going to have a daughter. My husband and I, he had two sons, so we just assumed that we were having a daughter for some reason, had named her and everything. And when I found out that there was a son, I was like, oh my God, I don't know how to raise a Black son in this country. It was very traumatizing to me to get that news, even though now I can't imagine not having had a son, and particularly Solomon, my son, being his mom. It was meant to be in my eyes. But I had fears that I didn't realize I had. That's not just because of contemporary things that happen where a kid can be walking with some Skittles and end up losing his life. It wasn't just because of those stories, but it was this generational story that I didn't realize I was living in fear of as well. I'm now the mom of a 16-year-old. It's a very different lifestyle than what I imagined, but they're still all me. I didn't lose that creative soul, that writing soul that I was. It just became two different pieces that I weaved together. And I, in fact, didn't finish the book until I was a mom. And the book changed because of my journey. The following is an excerpt from We Are Bridges by Cassandra Lane. 1904 is one of the historical years I know. It is seared into my cells and memory and writings about my family. I had wanted to explore how the lynching story of my history, a man torn from his unborn child through one of the worst forms of racial violence this country has witnessed, might be a part of my psyche and my conception story. 
1904 was a long time ago, yes. Still, those long time ago people were my grandparents and my great-grandparents, and for that alone, I love them. Bert was lynched nearly 70 years before my birth, but Mary survived, and I remember her. I remember bits and pieces of her. I remember the bitter and sweet of her. And since she lived until her 90s, Bert might have lived until his 90s too. His living might have spelled a better life for his son and his son's children, for me and my child. My elder's words sounded in my ears. Not telling the whole truth is a lie. It definitely was hard. I didn't want it to be sensational and I didn't want it to have a violent scene or anything like that. So I don't create the lynching. Mary sees his body after it's all done. But that was still hard to write, to imagine her seeing her love, the father of her child, hanging from a tree, a beautiful thing a tree is. Trees and the woods and plants have meant so much in my family and in our ancestors' lives. This just seemed like the ultimate betrayal, worst way to die. And so that was very much hard to write and had several breakdowns. I would say outside of that, it was very hard writing about my own junk. In this book, I talk about the affair that I had in my first marriage, which ultimately spelled the end of that marriage. It was difficult. There was much more that I went on. But once I started, I was like, this is not a book about pointing fingers, whether it's at the man who lynched bird or larger society. It was a labor of love that was not consistent. It was off and on throughout the years. It sat cold some years and other years I was consistently writing. I love editing. I love revising. So much of the time is spent editing your life. Write it out, like write it all out. But then it's like clay going back in and shaping it, shaving, carving, chiseling away at it. And then you'll see the holes. So then you're going to add a little bit more and then shape and carve and chisel away at that. So much of that is what took me so long. And then I was writing in spurts between working and mothering. I really didn't commit to spending hours at a time on the book until I had the contract. The book won the Louise Merriweather Prize from the Feminist Press. Then it was announced in 2020, which we all know what happened in 2020. So I found myself finally bringing this project, this dream to fruition in the middle of a pandemic, as you can relate as well. <laughs> it was a lot of virtual book club meetings. Exactly. I was like, you know what? This sounds right about how I would do it. <laughs> it was an amazing experience, a great honor to win the prize and to work with the Feminist Press, my publisher, and to bring the book out into the world. The full shape of being an author, from the privacy of writing in your room to being out in community, talking to other writers, talking to readers, performing, and things just took off from there. And we were all at home. I mean, the entire world stopped and had to take in the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, 2020. And that's when I was really deep in my final edits with my publisher. I remember my publicist saying, this is sadly timely, and I didn't want that. I wish I could be writing about my grandfather, what happened to him, but that would be something that we could say, oh, we've overcome, as the song goes. Yes, I am a joyous person. I love having fun. I love laughing. 
but I also can't ignore that this is continuing. Bert, when I looked up the meaning of his name, which means bright light and one who fulfills his honor and his duty to his family, I thought this book, I hope, is part of that duty that he didn't get to complete. And my son, hopefully, is part of that lineage, the hope that he had. And yet to turn on the TV or the radio and see the George Floyd coverage, it was disheartening. It can be so easy to just fold up, give up, and feel like this is never going to change. I think what kept me going was the fact that I had this deadline and I had supportive editors. And my son, Solomon, knew that I was working on this. And he was so excited, one of my biggest cheerleaders. You don't want to get, as a parent especially, caught up in the negativity, even if you're feeling a sense of internal doom, because you have a responsibility to give some sense of hope to your children who are watching you, who are listening. But I'll say that I started this particular project probably early 2002, and it was published in early 2021, along with your book. So what, 20 years? How did your family receive it? That's always the concern of memoirists, right? But not just memoirists. I mean, I have novelist friends who their families still think, oh, that was really about me. (laughs) It's always the ones who knew they didn't do something right. But anyway, my mom, I'm sure that parts of the book were not easy for her, but she was so proud. She not only read the book in its physical form, but she went and right after that listened to the Audible. And she told me that she just loved it. She got so caught up in it that there were times where she forgot that it was her daughter, which was the greatest compliment. My ex-husband, I definitely sent it to him since he's a character, big part of our stories. He had already always given me his blessings and he'd seen early iterations years ago. And I think as a fellow storyteller that he respects it and he honored that. There were parts where he in manuscript form said, oh, this didn't exactly happen like this, but it was detailed stuff oh, this didn't happen in that part of Harlem. He gave me that kind of feedback, but also his blessings and support. There were a couple of cousins, one family in particular, who were not happy and probably still are not happy. They blocked me, so I have no idea. They are upset about what essentially amounts to maybe two to four lines in the book where I talk about the fact that there was incest in our family. I don't name anyone. I really worked on keeping that to what I thought was the most bare bones. But I talk about a situation that impacted my sister and me after a family member broke into our bedroom in the middle of the night. And the book, it's talking about just trying to connect the dots of trauma. I raised that question about feeling unsafe. So those lines, which That's not what I thought anyone would really take issue with, because again, it's a couple of sentences, and I thought that fairly generic. That's what has been the fallout over the fact that I even acknowledged that the cousin broke into our room and that there was a trail of incest that actually dated back as far as my grandmother, whose father raped her after her mother died. My grandmother was very open about that and wanted people to know. And part of the reason why she wanted them to know is so they wouldn't repeat that pattern. And their argument was that this is not your story. This did not impact you. But in fact, it did. 
that was traumatizing to have this cousin break into the house and have some sort of solution in his hands and a rag and rope. I definitely ended up being the criminal because of those couple of lines. I think people think the moment that someone puts a book out, it means they're impervious to criticism. Obviously, in all of this, it was impactful to be supported by your mother and family, but it was also impactful to be negated and mistreated by family. I think that's important to talk about that. Having experienced that from the other side, but also being a member of the media as a journalist too, what do you wish was different in the way people were portrayed in the media or how people digested our stories? I guess language, instead of categorizing this is a victim story or this is a trauma story, how about it's just a story? How about it's just a holistic look at a person's life where they're trying to tell the truth, whether those truths are easy to digest or not? How about we just be open to everybody's story and getting whatever we can get out of those stories? And if it's not a book or a movie for us, then we move on. Instead of categorizing, trying to oppress and censor people telling their stories, I think the way that we talk about different genres and types of stories needs to change. I think that we all can benefit from really sharpening our listening skills. Everybody's talking, everybody's opposing each other right now. And if we could just stop, take a step back, take some deep breaths and listen, even if it might be an opposing view. Intentionally, I'm working on a story right now on book banning and what's going on with that. People think of the red states, but on the West Coast, we need to keep our eyes out for, we've got local authors whose books are being banned. One author was telling me, it's not just the books that they're banning, they're banning authors. They want us all to shut up. And that is so dangerous. We think about Hitler and Germany. It was like, how did that even happen? And now it's so obvious the early seeds of it, how it happens through propaganda and just people shutting each other out. All of these seemingly individual cases of violence. I think we just all need to actively listen in conversation, but also through reading books that are banned and go read all of those. Pan America on their website has a really great map where you can see what states are banning books. And they have a long list of all the books that are being banned. I would intentionally go read books that are on the books to be banned list. Because what is it that they found so dangerous that they don't want people to read? It's eye-opening to listen to other perspectives. Research shows that writing, even if it's not for public consumption, is so helpful in people's wellness, just their brain activity. It's empowering for people who are in prison. That's why you have writing programs for people who are imprisoned, people who have terminal illnesses. It's a great therapy tool for children who've been victims of trauma, just for everyone. So I think everyone should have a diary or journal that they write in every day. If they really want to pursue writing, join a workshop. There are so many workshops that you can find, and a lot of them specialize in writing about generational trauma or writing about the hard stuff. Get into community where you're dealing with a writing instructor who really has experience. 
in helping shape these stories and has created a warm and safe space for their writers, I think can be very, very helpful. Even though as a kid, I resented having to do all that work, I'm so glad that I learned how to cook. I do find it to be very meditative to really cook a slow cooked meal. The chopping of onion and garlic, celery and bell pepper, having all of those seep into my skin, into my fingers. I feel like I can sense my grandmother standing on side of me because she's mainly the one who taught me how to cook. Just having my hands in the food, sorting beans, I had gotten away from that kind of Southern cooking in my 20s, but when I became a mom, I wanted to introduce that past to my son. Especially during Thanksgiving, I'll make a really big Southern meal. One of the best parts about cooking is watching other people enjoy your food. To me, it's a love language. When I'm stuck on a piece of writing, to go into the kitchen and start chopping, cooking and sizzling and seasoning really can help me work out a problem in a story. I'm also the editor-in-chief of LA Parent Magazine. We cover a lot of different types of stories. We run a family recipe column in the magazine. It's about the story behind that favorite recipe. So that's, for me, a great outlet. I really started collecting dolls during the pandemic. I wasn't getting dressed and going anywhere, and I love clothes. I had no idea that Barbie had so many different options. There are just so many different types of Barbies now with the natural hair. When I grew up, all of my Barbies were white. There were no stores selling brown and black Barbies. And then I started buying all the outfits. And then I started creating like little scenes for them because I love going to place and it was funny and just another outlet as well. I love nature and hiking, all the things that are so accessible to us in Southern California. I try to do it as much as I can. And it was a balance while writing the book and editing the book to sometimes the heavy parts, just to go out and be with friends or family over a good meal, take a great hike, dancing, Zumba. I'm in Zumba at least four times a week. And then I have to say, having a professional therapist is essential. I really believe you have to get the tough stuff out of your body and you can get it out through activity, through making love, through dancing eating, all the wild things that make us human. There's this general theme throughout your life and in your works. We Are Bridges is reminiscent of closing gaps, creating bridges between generations and healing. Your nickname, Sand, also does that. When you shared that with me, I wrote it down and it struck me that all these individual fine pieces of sand can be fused together to create beautiful glass in all different colors and all different depths and thicknesses and shapes and forms. That kind of sounds like you too, that you can take many forms. You do many different things. You have so many ways of expressing yourself, but you also fuse all these gaps and you're fusing so much in your family. I commend you for your work. I think that the onus of responsibility of education should never be on the victim. So I commend you deeply for stepping forward that is so beautiful. I am just speechless. There's a place in the book where I mentioned that nickname and it was a more negative connotation because I thought sand is this crumbly thing. It's something that seeps through your fingers and I'm not solid. I don't have a foundation. And to get your metaphor of it fashioning, I mean, that's what I love about storytelling, the editing and the fashioning of words and stories. 
So for you to give a flip side is just so affirming for me. I thank you so much for that. No, thank you. And I think sometimes perspective is everything. I just appreciate you so much for being willing to have this conversation with me, for sharing in your book and in all your work and in everything that you do. I'm glad to be in this conversation with you as someone dealing with the aftermath of murder and fashioning that into a story as a bridge to have this conversation with someone who's done that hard work. So thank you. I am at Cass Lane Writes on Twitter, Cassandra.Lane71 on Instagram, Cassandra Lane on Facebook. My website is CassandraLane.net and LA Parent's website is LAParent.com. According to the civil rights organization, the NAACP, a lynching is the public killing of an individual who has not received due process in the criminal justice system. These executions were often carried out by lawless mobs, although sometimes police officers did participate. From 1882 to 1968, 4,743 lynchings occurred in the United States, according to records maintained by the NAACP. 72% of those victims were black. Devastatingly, it's impossible to know for certain how many lynchings truly occurred because there's no formal record of deaths. Thus, the number is believed to be underreported. This episode of What Came Next is dedicated to Burt Bridges. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. He pushes me out into this heap on the ground. And before he drives off, he goes, darling. I look back over my shoulder and he snaps photos. So I'm lying there now playing dead until he drives away. Then I get up and literally run for my life. Thank you again to Kitsch for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget, Kitsch is offering you 30% off your entire order at mykitsch.com slash WCN. One more time, mykitsch.com slash WCN for 30% off your entire order. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.